Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I want to tell you about an awesome platform called Bonfire that we've just begun to use at Majority 54. Bonfire.com is the easiest way to design, sell, and order premium shirts. And it's it's all virtual. It's risk-free. There's no out-of-pocket costs. So you go to bonfire.com and you can upload a design or you can use their templates and then they'll take care of printing and shipping it to your buyers. So Ravi and I worked with the Bonfire team to create a grab and or shirt for all of you to campaign in this election season. And it's available in a range of colors and styles. You can also use Bonfire and promote your own fundraiser to your community. And then when the campaign ends, Bonfire will print and ship your products directly to your buyers. And their fundraising features let you accept additional donations on top of the shirt sales. And you can even send all the proceeds directly to your favorite nonprofit. So if you're a political campaign, Bonfire is compliant with all the campaign finance laws and can give you additional insight into your supporters, making fundraising nice and hassle-free. It's trusted by the Women's March, California Women's List, Rock the Vote, and now us at Majority 54. So you can check out the Grab an Oar shirt that we designed at wondermedianetwork.com slash bonfire to continue supporting the show and our team at Wonder Media Network so they can keep creating podcasts that amplify underrepresented voices. Make sure to tag Ravi and I in any pictures of you rocking your Grab an Oar t-shirt that you get from Bonfire. Do it on Twitter and Instagram. And again, it's wondermedianetwork.com slash bonfire. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps the 54% who did not vote for Donald Trump talk to those who did about the most divisive issues in our country. Robin, you want to tell folks about our special guest co-host this week? Well, our special guest today is actually the person who introduced us, Jason. Uh, back right after your Senate run, we were putting on this thing called the Arena Summit right after the election, and there was this rock star 
uh, candidate coming out of the election who I was like, you know who would be the dream keynote speaker for this event? But, you know, we probably won't be able to get him. This is this guy, Jason Kander. And she's like, you know, I know Jason Kander. And so she connected us and we became fast friends. It's my friend Swathi Myla Varapu, uh, who runs Insight, uh, which is a mission-driven organization that invests in companies, nonprofits, and political organizations that are all doing things for the greater good. And one of those organizations is Arena, the organization that I run and that she helped found. We've known each other for over 10 years, maybe 15 years now, back when we were in college. And she has gone on to do amazing things. She was the national investment chair for Pete's campaign uh, and a key advisor to him. She's worked at companies like Square and, and Quid and at uh, big-time venture capital firms like Kleiner Perkins, and she was a Rhodes Scholar. She's basically just the smartest person I know, and so we're really excited to have you today, Swathi. I'm excited to be here. It's fun to, sort, to hear the two of you hosting this podcast, and I'm glad to join the conversation. Well, thank you, Swathi, for doing it. We tend to start every episode, uh, as you know, um, by talking about conversations we've had recently with persuadable voters so that we can sort of model that behavior that we're preaching about uh, during every podcast. So I'll, I'll start this time and I'll say that, you know, sometimes the person who needs persuading already agrees and is voting the same way as us, but isn't giving any time to the cause and they're just complaining. And uh, a couple nights ago, I was out in my garage uh, breaking down boxes for recycling and it was sort of dusk and somebody was walking by the house, somebody I didn't know, and they walked up and said, you're Jason Kander, right? And I was like, yeah. And we'll call this guy Brad. He introduced himself and he said, I got a question. I said, all right, Brad, what's your question? He said, why aren't the Democrats fighting back? Why are they such wimps? And so we went through this conversation for a minute, and then I said, Brad, let me ask you, how many hours have you given so far this year to a Democratic campaign or cause? And he said, well, none. I mean, it's just because they just won't fight back, so why should I? So that was a frustrating conversation that I hope Brad wanders by the house again. Maybe I can convince him to give some time. But I mentioned it to say I wasn't successful in that one. But I'm sure a lot of our listeners are, are hearing from these same sorts of people. And I hope very few of our listeners are acting this way. I hope that people are doing more than just listening to the show, that they're actually talking to their friends and relatives about these ideas. And if not, or at the same time, they're also doing things like making calls and texting. Yeah, it reminds me of after the 2016 election, there was so much energy placed on Hillary Clinton or Comey or all these people outside of our control. And I think the most productive response, which I think most people took to that election was, what can I do differently? Uh, and that's certainly the question I asked. I, I looked around and I said, I did absolutely nothing other than vote to help Hillary Clinton win. And so instead of blaming her, maybe we should you know, look at ourselves. Uh, and so I like that push. Well, so then you and Swathi started Arena. So that was a pretty, you, you were doing better than Brad. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I had a lot of ground to make up, you know, I had spent a few years outside of politics. You know, it's really interesting because I think it takes a slightly different flavor out in my neck of the woods, but there there's a similar parallel. Like I spend a lot of time talking to people that are building tech companies as employees, as founders, and it's a similar thing. It's like everybody out here, there's an assumption that we're going to vote and we know how we're going to vote for, and that's the end all be all in our civic responsibility. But increasingly, I try and have these uncomfortable conversations with these friends about well, what are you building and how do your values show up, not just in the way that you vote once every two or four years, but also in what you're building. And if you're helping to build a social media platform that is one of the biggest avenues through which misinformation spreads, for example. 
how do you manifest your values that way? If you are building a company that is generating returns for a venture capital firm where the partners are funding Donald Trump, how do you make a choice in who you pitch and how, who you're accumulating, helping accumulate power and wealth for? You know, how do you manifest your values, not just in your volunteer efforts or the money that you chip into a candidate or the vote that you're making, but also in the core thing that you're building? I think increasingly in, in my community, um, this community of, of tech builders, these kinds of questions are really, really important. And we don't ask them enough. And I know they're really uncomfortable, but I'm starting just by asking the questions. How do people react when you do that? Well, they get uncomfortable. You know, oftentimes it's not surprising you hear a bit of defensiveness because I think we've held on to this, this myth of being apolitical, of being neutral for too long. And, you know, I'm kind of reminded, I tend to go to extremes here, but I'm reminded about like the passage from Dante's Inferno that explains that the hottest place in hell is for the folks that try and stay apolitical during times of moral crisis. And I think what we're learning from all of the data and the evidence is that really no such thing as being neutral. We are all political in this moment. And the sooner we acknowledge that, the sooner we can actually start to do stuff about it. It's interesting because, as you know, I've spent a fair amount of time out in Silicon Valley raising political money. And there's definitely, and I think one of the reasons that I liked you so much when I first met you is because this wasn't present in our conversation, but there is a really pervasive feeling among a lot of people there of like, well, I'm here and I'm building things and we're pretty much God's gift. So we have <laughs> very little responsibility beyond that. I mean, it, it and, and I, I don't, you know, I'm overgeneralizing obviously, but that's, you've seen that too, right? That's what you're talking about. I live in it. Yeah. I live in it. And I think what's happened in the time, even candidly, Jason, since you were out here, you know, working in your Senate race four years ago to now is it has now become so clear, even in the specter of American, the sphere of American public opinion, that while everybody out here thought we were building little Davids, we, these platforms have very quickly become Goliaths. And with that comes additional responsibility. You've got to change the way that you think about building when you realize you're building a utility for everybody versus, you know, the startup that's got to do whatever it takes to to be successful. So my neighbor, Brad, and like a, a tech CEO like the one you're describing, here's what I think they have in common. They have both put politics and the, what they consider the train wreck of, you know, American leadership right now in a column of separateness that they are in no way responsible for, but have the luxury of complaining about and lamenting about, which is why Brad walks up to me and, you know, in a way that he doesn't even know he's doing, basically implies that it's my fault because I'm involved and he's not. I get that all the time. Uh, and I've had some pretty heated conversations with people where they basically put the whole system on my shoulders because I work in politics. And uh, we have a listener voicemail that actually dovetails nicely with this question of what it means to be apolitical. Hi there. Um, great voicemail. Um, my name is Taylor, and I listen to your show quite a bit. I am currently like volunteering, texting people for voting and getting them registered to vote and voting absentee. And, um, you know, there's some people that you text that they're not very nice, but um, there's been a couple people that say that they're just apolitical, and I don't really know how to respond to that. And I'm wondering, like, how is there a nice way to say, um, I think you need to check your privilege? Yeah. Thanks. Bye. 
Well, I, I think Taylor's question applies equally to Brad and to our Silicon Valley CEOs. And I think about this a lot because where I came from in Staten Island, the the Trump vote. So this isn't the apolitical people doesn't necessarily mean they're not in some way influencing our politics. The apolitical people viewed in Trump somebody who was also apolitical. And so they voted for him kind of as a protest vote against the system. And so, you know, this is something that we should take very seriously. And the good news is that in this election cycle, there are fewer of those people than there have ever been in American political history. So uh, Wall Street Journal put out a poll this weekend that showed that 75% of voters rated themselves on a scale of 1 to 10 as a 10 out of 10 in terms of voter enthusiasm, which is the highest they've ever recorded going back all the way past the 60s. So that means that there are a lot of people who were really into this election one way or another, and most of those people are already decided. But I'll just give one quick tip and then pass it to you guys, which is I think it's important not to be self-righteous about it. So when you're you're talking to somebody, instead of being like, hey, I'm I'm active and you need to be too, that's not going to convince anybody. And it also doesn't acknowledge what we talked about earlier, which is that a lot of us have, have had a lot of room to grow in our own civic uh, participation, even though we work in politics. And so I think more just asking them questions, you know, sort of in the candor-esque way of what do you care about? Like the school not being open down the street or businesses continuing to struggle under the weight of COVID, et cetera. Like what are the issues you care about? And then try to connect those issues to um, our political system. Yeah. It also reminds me, you know, one of the things that I think, Jason, I remember your campaign doing so well and Ravi, it was a motivation for us when we started Arena is, you know, you can approach someone who's not engaging from the position of you're guilty, you have privilege, you're doing all of these things except for your responsibility. Or you can approach it from a place of, hey, maybe you didn't know that this option was available to you. Maybe it was really daunting and you didn't know where to start because you always felt like politics was for those people over there. And it was super non-transparent to you on how to get engaged. And just invite them to start with something super lightweight and easy. Make it feel accessible. I think that's something that I also learned on Pete's campaign. There's so many people in this country who care right now. They care. They're upset. They're tired of watching news and feeling their blood pressure go up, but they don't feel like politics is accessible to them. Yeah. Somebody put a great metaphor out in social media um, a few months ago, which was uh, something akin to politics is like transportation system. Like, you know, you, you take the bus to get as close as possible to your where you want to go. It might not get you precisely where you want to go. That's kind of how I think about politics, which is, you know, it's not a bespoke process. It's not like they're going to come to me and say, what do you think about, you know, 100 issues? And we're going to give you 100 out of 100 of the things you want. I might only I might only get 60. I might only get 50. I think that's like the grown-up way to think about this, and I and I and I worry sometimes that there's a segment of our our populace that expects everything they want right away, and it's hard to talk people down from that. Uh, thank you very much uh, for the voicemails. We'll probably go through some more of them. Uh, you can leave a voicemail for us, possibly hear yourself, uh, you know, which who doesn't want to hear themselves on this podcast, uh, and have us respond to you. The number is 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. I highly recommend it. I enjoy hearing myself on this podcast every week. Uh, <laughs> all right, let's get to the news of the week. Ravi, what do you got for us? All right, obviously a huge news week. We did an emergency pod on Friday, but we're going to pick up where that discussion left off. And we have Trump now announcing that he's going to make his pick on Saturday. And uh, McConnell has reiterated, no surprise, that he intends to fill the seat 
before the year's end. And as of this recording, which is on Wednesday, we don't know yet whether he's going to push for the vote before or after the election, but he certainly has the votes. So um, as of now, uh, we have Collins as the only person who's indicated uh, and put a bright line that she intends not to vote on the nominee until the next president sits, which actually in many ways echoes the prediction we made on Friday. So gold star to us for getting that part right. Um, Murkowski initially seemed like she was not going to vote for this uh, pick, but now is is saying she's going to wait and to see who gets selected. And then everybody else in GOP ranks has closed ranks behind the president. And so this would be the quickest approval of a justice, I think, in American history. And shout out to the actor George Hahn, who on social media said, you know, if Trump moved on the virus as quickly as RBG's seat, we'd all be in a different place. Um, this is obviously an, an incredible swiftness that we didn't see in stimulus packages or um, unemployment benefits, et cetera, which could be a line we hear on Tuesday night at the debates. But it looks like the front runner, and, and we could be surprised here because Trump doesn't make decisions like most people, but at least all indications seem that the front runner is Judge Amy Coney Barrett of the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit in Chicago. Just, you know, Swathi and Jason, you know, what can we do, if anything, about what seems like an all but certain approval of a justice in the United States Senate? There's a lot we can do. And in fact, many of us are. You probably saw some of the news, but I think Democrats have raised... $200 million in the news since Friday night that RBG passed. So obviously, this is a huge galvanizing issue that has all kinds of people paying attention and literally putting their, their money uh, into the work to try and do something about this. One of the most important actions you can take is to make sure that you are set up and have a plan to vote and that you are supporting important down-ballot races, particularly in the House and in the Senate, that are going to have a lot of bearing even if there is a confirmation this year on what the future of the court looks like uh, in the post-2021 scenario. Um, so those are all really important things. You can also make calls to your senators and just let them know where you stand, although it's increasingly looking like this is just going to come down to a pure partisan fight for the next 90 days uh, while we've still got the sitting Senate. It appears that the Senate is not going to budge. And I agree, we can focus on on winning the election. Just focus on it like a laser. And by the way, I want to make sure everybody understands that Susan Collins is not let off the hook by this because, look, I've served in a legislative body where the Republicans had a slim majority. When I first got to the state legislature in 2009, it was, it was only a few votes that separated the Republicans and the Democrats in Missouri. That, of course, has changed since. But the Republicans had a slight majority. And I remember watching the Republican leader walk up and down the aisle on the Republican side and on close votes tell which Republicans he was instructing to vote against him. He would say, look, I know your district on this one. You go ahead and peel off. He knew exactly. And that's McConnell's initial letter. You know, keep your powder dry. Let's talk about what makes the most sense for you was aimed right at people like Susan Collins. Clearly, they've made the determination that in order to have a chance at keeping Maine, they need her to do this. This is not, in my opinion, a vote of conscience on her part. This is a vote of strategy, and I don't think she should deserve any credit from Maine voters for it. But we can focus like a laser on winning the election and then deal with uh, trying to right this wrong afterwards. Yeah, and some of the specific races that come to mind are you just hit on a big one. So supporting Sarah Gideon in her race against Susan Collins uh, supporting Teresa Greenfield in her race against Joni er Ernst in Iowa, another really um, vulnerable Republican. 
There's a special election in Georgia, Raphael Warnock, who's within line of sight to Kelly Loeffler, who's really just an appointed senator providing She's, that vote uh, in Georgia. She's self-described to the right of Attila Hun in her own ad this week. Yeah, look, like, if you want to make sure that people don't pull this crap in the future, then you make sure that everybody looks back on the 2020 election and goes, man, we really should not have rammed through that confirmation because that cost us the Senate and the White House big time. I want to call out a segment of the Democratic Party right now who quickly, I think, rushed to defeatism about this and saying, you know, this is only going to help the Republicans. Now, you're warranted a sense of loss about both Justice Ginsburg and the seat itself. But it is not warranted to say this is going to de facto help the Republicans because you're answering the question already because we are the electorate. This gets back to what we started this podcast with. And if you look at the data, all indications are that this is going to excite us more than it excites them because uh, as you know, if you've ever had anything in abundance, you appreciate it a lot less over time. Um, And so you know, we like to talk about the New England Patriots here. If you've won 10 Super Bowls, the 11th one just doesn't quite get you out of bed in the same way. Um, whereas we've been getting our teeth kicked in and not we've been winning the popular vote almost every election for 20 years. Um, and yet we're faced with a 6-3, a possible 6-3 Supreme Court. And so we're the ones who are excited. And um, Politico had a poll on this that showed that Democrats, uh, 60% of Democrats are very likely to be motivated by this in the ballot box as opposed to only 54% of the GOP. So it's just simply not true. You put that together with the 200 plus million dollars that Swathi talked about, we're more motivated by uh, by this pick than they are. And as we talked about last time, this is about the long game. And within a few months, we could turn around and put two Supreme Court justices on the bench. We can do DC statehood, Puerto Rico statehood, uh, and we could ha- pass House Bill 1 uh, and completely restructure power dynamics in DC in ways that are nearly permanent. Uh, And that's the game that we need to be playing now because we have way more control over that than anything else. Yeah, to me, there's also a really interesting question about how you have this conversation with undecided voters. Um, And even in some cases, tried and true issue-based voters on the Republican side for whom just having this appointment on the court is going to matter. And that, I think it's important to have a conversation about, well, why does it matter who's on the Supreme Court? Like we can focus on just the issue of the court composition, or we can actually push past that into a conversation of what are the issues that are coming up before the bench for which this matters. And, you know, it's significant. 80% of Americans are in favor of the ACA. They want their health care, particularly right now when we're being ravaged by a pandemic that's infecting millions of us and is likely going to create more pre-existing conditions. Listen, there are cases waiting in the lower courts to go up to the Supreme Court that will basically put the kibosh on the ACA. 70 plus percent of Americans support reproductive rights. There are cases that are waiting to go forward in front of the Supreme Court to strip those rights from us. Yeah, so that's a good segue. Judge Amy Comey Barrett has written, she wrote a criticism of Justice Roberts on the ACA case, made it very clear that she wants to strike down the ACA, which is a case that is up on the docket for hearing one week after the November election, whether it's Judge uh, Amy Comey Barrett or uh, whoever else may get this pick is going to be somebody who likely for overturning Roe versus Wade. And we had a listener voicemail on this subject. So why don't we listen to that? Hey, guys. The issue that I would like to talk about is abortion, because it seems like with a lot of people, it just comes down to abortion and why they voted for Trump. And I always had the idea 
that abortions were down under Democratic presidents, but I have no idea if that's actually true or not. And I just feel ill-equipped to talk about it to people who really do care about the issue and that's what they vote um, solely on. So if we could talk about that, I would be really appreciative. Thanks. You know, this is this is a tough one to dispense advice to somebody on whether or not they should talk about it. For me, it comes down to a really authentic personal experience, which is what I tend to engage folks in my community about when this topic comes up. So for me, this is a really personal thing. You know, I um, I found out later in life in my mid-30s that I was not able to have a child on my own. And thank God for my husband and I that I found this out before we actually were in a situation where we had to make a choice about whether or not to keep a pregnancy. But I do know this, that when we made our decisions about starting a family and how to go about doing that, it was an incredibly emotionally and psychologically trying time. It was one of the most vulnerable moments that I've had. And I say this also as a cancer survivor. And I, the last thing that I wanted was the court of Americans' opinions in that really intimate decision to make between me and my partner about a life that we wanted to bring into the world and a child that we wanted to raise. So I talk about abortion and reproductive rights access as the ability for every woman and her partner to make a decision about what's in the best interest of them and their family. And there isn't a place for the government and for other people's opinions and rules on that. I want the freedom to make that choice in whatever's, you know, the best for us. And I think that's kind of the experience that I put out there, that this is more about uh, the flexibility and freedom to make decisions. And you know, I think there's an important thing to keep in mind. I can think of very few rules out there, laws on the books, that tell men in this country what they can and can't do with their bodies. And by the same extension, why should we have those in place for women? Yeah, I, I totally agree that it's about personalizing it because it is such a personal issue. I think it's the only way to go. Um, for uh, men who are listening, who may not feel that they're in a position to personalize it in the same way. I think you got to remember that it's not going to happen in one conversation and that there's a good chance that the person that you're discussing this with is pitting whatever you're saying against what their pastor says. And you have to keep that in mind. And, you know, I've had this conversation often and some of the specific questions that I ask, and, and by the way, I try to only have this particular conversation with people that I already have a relationship with, a coworker, somebody like that, because it's just a very hot and heated conversation, very heated conversation to have if you don't have some sort of pre-existing relationship. And so what I have said to people is I ask them, well, should abortion be legal in cases of rape or incest? I'll ask them, what about when the woman's health is in danger? And then at some point in the conversation, they'll say yes to one of those. And, and they'll say it should be illegal. And then I ask, well, okay, how many years in prison would you like to see that woman get uh, for having an abortion? And then by the end, I just try and really politely point out that they're a little bit pro-choice. And that they're not actually choosing between a pro-choice candidate and an anti-choice candidate. They're choosing between a candidate that is entirely not pro-choice and a candidate that, like them, is a little bit pro-choice, but, but maybe more pro-choice than them. And I just try and, like, sort of loosen the jar on this a little bit, you know, for the next time. I was looking at the Planned Parenthood guidance on how to talk about this before this podcast. And, you know, they have really good language about just 
it's really important at the beginning to acknowledge that this is super complex and that for a lot of people, it's it's personal uh, and it's people aren't reading scientific textbooks to say when does life begin or not. It's often it often involves different thought processes than that. And I, I love the idea of just trying to find within your own life somewhere where you can show your humanity even as you hold steadfast on the policy. You know, like I think about in my case, my mom, when I was, a, she told me this when I was in, I think, middle school or high school, but I was raised by my mom. And my, my mom once uh, sat me down and she's like, I got to tell you a story. And she said, uh, when I was pregnant with you, I had scheduled an abortion due to pressure from my father because they were kind of on the rocks at the time. And I walked into the clinic for the scheduled abortion and was sitting there and just thought to myself uh, about the decision. And she said, God spoke to her in the waiting room and said, you should leave. And then she walked out. And I was like, why did you tell me this story? Like, what am I supposed to do with this information? And she said, well, you know, you've seen me at pro-choice protests before. You've, you've seen my views on this. But I don't want you to think that this is some kind of issue that I come to lightly. Um, and it's really complicated. And, you know, people on the other side aren't terrible people for believing what they're believing. We just have a good faith disagreement. And so I always think about that because it's like, I think like the worst thing we could do is, is go to people who just genuinely have a, di- a difference of opinion than us and, and just tell them they're wrong. I think that it's that's not going to do a whole lot of good here. Swati, uh, Mayor Pete was great about this, which is talking about faith as about more than any single issue. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think one of the things that Pete is so remarkably great at because it's authentic, it's who he is, is he, because he is a man of faith, he can connect with supporters of faith. And, you know, conversations on some of these really thorny, difficult issues He's not engaging or discrediting faith as a place of motivation. He's actually using that as a way to open a conversation about, you know, some of these harder questions of morality and right and wrong. It's important to be able to meet every voter and supporter where they are and to be able to have those conversations with them rather than discredit them. And I think that also applies on this on the reproductive rights and abortion com- conversations. We don't begrudge anybody the rooting in faith that might lead them to their position. What we want to talk about is the position and how it applies to very real people. So this week's Quarantine Corner is brought to us by our friends at Noom. And I posted this on social media the other day, but I've been using Noom since a few months ago. And I, like a lot of listeners, probably let certain habits get out of hand during quarantine. And so uh, in the past few months, I've started to rein those in. And through Noom and through all the different sort of techniques and tools you have, they have there, um, I lost a ton of weight. And I think one psychological trick I played uh, over the past few weeks where I've seen some of the biggest progress is I actually stopped focusing so much on exercise uh, and basically said, my willpower, I'm not going to apply it to exercise. I may exercise because I want to, but I'm not going to feel obligated to. I'm going to focus all of my willpower on food. And that's it. So if I don't work out five days in a row, but I eat well, that's where I want to use my willpower. And it's amazing. Like I saw much better results than if I had worked out five times a day uh, for you know that entire period of time. And so I think I learned something there that I might be a little too exercise focused and not enough food focused. 
you're you're an exercised focused person. So it, <laughs> I guess this means th- it's just I, it's just a change. It doesn't mean I'm not exercise yeah. focused. It's just less yeah. exercise focused. <laughs> no, I mean you're like my exercise focused mentor in life. So now now I'm just rocked from the from the foundation. I don't even know what to do. No. Uh, well, mine is my quarantine corner uh, item is food related as well. Uh, I am officially just team sweet potato. Just you know, bake them, slice them up, put them in the fridge. Three ounces of sweet potato, one small can of sardines. That's become like my go-to snack for about the last couple months. Well, I mean, far be it from me to shy away from a conversation on food, and I'm glad that both of you guys are getting into this because I think it's an important part of wellness. And right now, the world has so much crazy going on in it that focusing on ways to create wellness even in quarantine is super important. Uh, my quarantine corner share takes a slightly different tack though. So I'm I'm a mom to two littles. I have a two-year-old and a four-month-old. And one of the things that I think a lot about because my two-year-old is a little girl uh, is making sure that we're incorporating and she's not able to start preschool or anything because of our quarantine requirements. But we're trying to figure out how to create moments of inspiration for her and also build her self-confidence because she is growing into a woman in this world. And I've discovered these really awesome, this little series of books by a writer named Andrea Beattie. Uh, She writes stories usually about really strong little girls that are exploring what you might consider non-traditional paths um, for little girls. So there's one called Sofia Valdez, Future Prez, or Iggy Peck, who wants to be an architect or Rosie Revere, who realizes that her calling is to be an engineer. Um, So we've been having a lot of fun with those, and the illustrations are really cool. There's something fun for the grown-ups and for little kids. Do you ever think of writing a children's book? I think it would be a really great idea. Um, I think there are even little bits from our our political and civics journeys these last few years that would be great to share. Like I also have been checking out lately Mina Harris, Kamala Harris's niece, wrote a book about what her mom and her aunt did in running for president. You know, I think it's like Maya and Kamala had a dream. Yeah, maybe we should do one. Uh, True and I are actually writing a children's book. Oh, wow. That's so cool. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's not a lot of words, so we we can do it. Yeah, it's one of those deceptive things, right, where you're like, oh, like, how hard could this be? I could imagine it's way harder than it looks, you know, because every word to do with him. Yeah, it's cool to get his perspective on the stuff we're writing about. It's stuff I would never think of. So I have a running text chain with uh, a few of my college buddies, and sometimes a, a big conversation starts with just a simple question. And one of my buddies this week was like, hey, I'm thinking about you know home security. Uh, do you guys like lock every door in your house? And everybody's coming in with different responses. And then I come in and I say, well, I have a dog, I lock every door, and also we have cameras. And one of the guys is like, yeah, but you're well known. And then another guy was like, yeah, also not all of us have hypervigilance as a result of combat post-traumatic stress. Well, he's right, but you don't have to have post-traumatic stress uh, from your deployment to Afghanistan. You could just be somebody who simply wants to keep your house safe. And for that, they're Simply Safe. Simply Safe's got everything you need to protect your home with none of the drawbacks of traditional home security. And it's got an arsenal of sensors and cameras to blanket every room, window, and door tailored specifically to your home. And professional monitoring keeps watch day and night. You can set it up yourself in under an hour. You just peel and stick the sensors exactly where you need them. No technician required. There's no contract, no pushy sales guys or gals, no hidden fees, no fine print. And it all starts at 15 bucks a month. 
Look, I'm not the only one who thinks Simply Safe is great. U.S. News and World Report named it the best overall home security of 2020. So no matter what your reason, you can head to simplysafe.com/majority54, and our listeners can get a free HD camera. That's simplysafe.com/majority54 to make sure they know that our show sent you. So one thing I've learned over the past few years as I've dove into the sort of world of health and wellness is that community really matters. And our friends over at Noom truly understand this more than anybody else out there in the game. They have put together not only lessons, which teach you about uh, how to be a healthy person, everything from weight loss to your energy levels, uh, but they also have food logging on the app. And they have a community of people who uh, are sharing their goals and continually motivating each other through the app. And so they've pulled everything together so it's not just a solitary experience, but you have a group of people cheering you on. And crucially, you have a coach. Like who doesn't want a coach for their health and wellness? And so you get somebody who's in your ear just motivating you how you want to be motivated. And so I've never seen anything like this before. I've been using it uh, over the course of the summer. And like many people who listen to this podcast... I had some serious goals. Like I wanted to fix my sleep. I wanted to lose some weight. I wanted to drink more water. And I've just crushed every one of those goals because of the community and the coach behind me and because they have a really cool app where you can keep track of everything. Noom only asks you to commit 10 minutes a day. No shaming. If you go off track, you can get right back on track tomorrow. And you don't have to change it all in one day. Small steps make big progress. Sign up for your trial today at Noom, that's N-O-O-M dot com slash majority. What do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com slash majority to start your trial today. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash majority. For this week in misinformation, we're going to have a special Bill Barr focused segment. Uh, and the reason Woo-hoo! why we're... <laughs> yeah, don't... <laughs> get excited. We got your calls and letters, people. Yeah. So we're finally doing it. We're giving the people what they want. The reason why we're doing this is because this is almost a preemptive uh, segment, meaning like we are expecting a lot of misinformation to come from our attorney general. And the reason is there's been a pattern of behavior from Bill Barr going all the way back to how he basically put the kibosh on the impeachment report and, you know, in a very sinister way. Um, was able to mangle it in in the public debate. Uh, And ever since then, he has been showing his cards as not a person who has sworn an oath to the Constitution, but as somebody who is a political operative serving the interests of the president, not as an office, but as a human being, as a person. So um, there were a couple of things he did over the past few weeks that I think it's important for us to take note of. Uh, One is he announced... Uh, and his Justice Department announced that he's going to brand New York City, Seattle, and Portland as anarchist jurisdictions that can lose federal funding. Uh, and this is important for those of us who live uh, in some of those cities and those who care about cities like that, because these are cities that already send way more federal dollars to the system than they get back in return. And although there's a lot of griping about that, you know, we're, we're generally, we, we like to be good civic citizens. So we understand that we're never going to get 100% back that we want. But we've always been fighting for more parity. So he's saying he's going to go even further than that and claw back federal funds. Um, He also had a remarkable soundbite um, over the past week where he compared COVID lockdowns to slavery. 
stay-at-home orders is like house arrest. It's, 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 you know, other than slavery, which was a different kind of restraint, this is the greatest intrusion on civil liberties in American history. We have a little bit more about Barr, but let's pause there. Like, what, what should we make of this, and how should we prepare ourselves for what could be a few months in which the Justice Department uh, is going to be run uh, as an arm of the Trump political campaign? Yeah, I think when when anything having to do with Barr comes up, I think it's important to start with the question of, well, who does that help, right? Because when when he took the job, uh, he signed up for the job like whole hog in the sense that he signed up to basically replace Michael Cohen as Trump's fixer. And I think it's important whenever you're talking about this with with anybody in your life who's undecided or whatever is to, to point out that the job of the attorney general is actually to be our fixer, uh, that he's he's really bar. He's not running a Department of Justice. He's running a Department of Revenge on behalf of President Trump. And for, in particular, on the anarchist jurisdiction thing, uh, you know, this is just really clear that they just really, really badly want to make defund the police an issue in the election. And that's why, if you look, they're only targeting with this like ridiculous order blue states who they have no chance of winning. You know, Minneapolis and Austin have both reduced police funding, but Trump is in a fight to win Texas and Minnesota, so they didn't make the list. So it's just, I think the question with anything having to do with Barr and any news coming out of the Justice Department is you just got to emphasize, well, who does this actually serve? Because the answer is always Trump. Right. And it's important to also note that he he mentions a national lockdown, which did not happen. Uh, and there were specific state stay-at-home orders, and I think anybody who's been in any of uh, the states with pretty strict stay-at-home orders, it's not like police were rounding people up who were in violation of these things. And he's the attorney general, other than a few cases about churches, he hasn't really done anything. So if he really does think that this is like Korematsu or something, um, or Japanese internment camps or um, eugenics or Jim Crow, you know, it's worse than all of these different things. You would think that he would have done something as the the attorney general of the United States to to solve this incredible crisis of civil liberties. Also, can we be real for a second about stay at home orders? Like other than a, a little bit of news I've heard about what's happening like in California and in New York, where I've seen some footage where they're actually enforcing these like in the rest of the country, we're on the honor code, man. Like this is like there's no real enforcement. This is everybody. You know, it is like in our town, it is the mayor wisely saying this is how this has to work and this is how this is going to work in public places. And frankly, the vast majority of Kansas Cityans going, yeah, yeah, I think that makes sense. And then just abiding by it and kind of not acknowledging the fact that there's really no enforcement mechanism. So anybody who's mad about a stay at home order and who brings that up to you, point out to them, man, we're all just kind of doing this on the honor code. Like if you're mad at somebody, it's your neighbors. It's not really the people in power because they don't actually have the resources to enforce it. The other thing I'm thinking about is like, what else has the attorney general weighed in on recently? And you know, his is one of the chief cabinet level positions that should be building public confidence in the free and fair administration of our elections. But he is also repeatedly calling that into question too. So really fomenting doubt and discord and just all kinds of unhelpfulness for everybody except for one particular person. So to Jason's point, you know, you got to ask, who is he actually, who's this work benefiting the most? Right. And, you know, Republicans were apoplectic that Loretta Lynch had the nerve to meet with Bill Clinton and say a quick hello uh, on the tarmac uh, of an airport. Meanwhile, we have Barr making statements like this. Uh, we have Barr like I said, who um, you know is massaging the impeachment report. 
He's dropping charges against Flynn. He reduced the sentence against Stone. You know, these are friends of the president who have secrets to keep. And then he went further and he's signaling how he thinks about the office. And I think it's really important to take him at his word. So he was at a forum recently and he, he went off about his own Justice Department employees, basically talking about how um, line prosecutors have too much discretion. And then he went on to talk about how he views the office. And this is what he said. He said, under the law, all prosecutorial power is vested in the attorney general. And these people are agents of the attorney general. As I say to FBI agents, whose agent do you think you are? And I don't say this in a pompous way, <laughs> by the way, but that is a, the chain of authority and legitimacy in the Department of Justice. So he doesn't say, guys, in a pompous way, but I was under the impression that they're agents of the Constitution and of this country, not of the attorney general. Am I wrong about that? No, <laughs> but uh, look, I've said it before. He's a poor man's Dick Cheney. And like he what he understands is power and using power and anything that he does in order to use that power toward what he wants to accomplish is therefore virtuous by default. And anybody who wants to have a conversation about Bill Barr, I just say, look, if after the Iraq war, you think that Dick Cheney should have had more responsibility and been kept around, then like Bill Barr is your guy. I thought the bar was set, <laughs> pun intended, very low with Jeff Sessions. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's going even lower. It's a game of limbo. It's going to keep going lower and lower and lower until we fall on our ass as a country, uh, which we may have done already. But just to signal to to listeners, okay, why why pay attention to this? Because two things. One is you may see a wave of uh, politically motivated prosecutions as we head towards the election, very possible. And two is that the Justice Department has a tremendous amount of authority over the way that elections are run and also the overtime period that happens after an election if there's still disputes about the vote, which we can pretty much guarantee is going to happen. Swathi, we have a segment called Unsolicited Campaign Advice, and we would invite you to give some unsolicited campaign advice to people who are out there campaigning right now. Uh, one of my favorite subjects, unsolicited campaign advice. I have lots of it. So my, my top line today, because it's something that I've spent the last year thinking a lot about, although I was relatively uninitiated before that, is don't be scared of money in politics. That's not to say that we don't need to change it. We really do. But more of us have to understand it in order for us to be in positions where we can change it. And my very specific advice is if you are a candidate who is fundraising this cycle, you're probably making lots of phone calls, sending lots of emails and text messages. Be authentic. One of my favorite stories that I like to share is there was a cycle where there was a candidate running for office who I had known for a very long time personally, who reached out to me to check in on how I was doing literally while I was dealing with cancer. And in the last two minutes of the 10 minute call, really made it hard pressed to know that I needed to max out to support their campaign. Separate the ask for money from the authentic conversation with your supporters where you care about the relationship. Be really clear when you're asking for money. Be really clear when you're actually checking in on the human being. Uh, but be authentic. The advice that I have for folks that are working on the campaign staff side is if you're running a fundraising program, build it in a way where you are activating and creating net new fundraisers. Don't just compete after the same establishment fundraisers that are out there. This is something that we learned how to do really well on Pete's campaign. One of our best fundraisers, I love telling the story, was a 19-year-old college freshman. Uh, he actually went on to be one of the top fundraisers on the campaign by raising three and $5 contributions on social media. 
And my advice to those of you that are chipping in, that are engaging the cycle by contributing hard-earned dollars is make sure that you take a portfolio approach. One of the problems this, this cycle is that Democrats are getting super attached, as we often do to candidates, versus the overall strategic cause, like winning the Senate, which is part of the reason why we're in a scenario where like one Senate race has almost $50 million, but another more winnable Senate race has raised less than 10. So if you're going to put 100 bucks in this cycle, make sure that you're thinking about how to split it up between really big and important winnable races, but also some of the reach races and rising candidates, usually first-time candidates, women and candidates of color, even though they're running really awesome campaigns and very winnable races, we tend to underinvest in them. So maybe make sure that you're setting aside some dollars to proactively look for some of those folks to support. Swarthy, that was fantastic advice. I just want to double check. The person who called you, they're not on this podcast no, right now. No, no, right? no, 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 definitely not. <laughs> I unfortunately know who it is too. And you know, uh, okay, we laugh because we... I've called Swathi for money a fair amount of times, and I just <laughs> I didn't remember doing that, but I wanted to make sure. <laughs> She's talking about the the time honored switcheroo, which is like you know, Jason. Um, you know, you got a few minutes. I just want to get your advice, and then you're thirty minutes deep into a call, and then you finally realize what the true purpose of the call is when you'd be like, by the way, um, have you maxed out yet? That is the worst. I used to start out those calls as a candidate one of two ways. I used to either say, look, this is a good old-fashioned fundraising call, uh, but we can talk and be friends first. We'll get back to this in a minute to make it like less weird. But then the other way would be, I would actually, because people would start dodging my calls, understandably, because I was calling for money all the time, and I would call and leave a message and say, hey, I actually just want to talk to you please feel free to call back. I promise I won't be asking you for money. Like you had to give them a heads up. And I Amen think you're to that. super authentic. And I'm sure the folks you're reaching out to appreciated that. I, I, I was 99% sure I couldn't have been the one who did that, but I thought I no, had. No, you were <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we have some awards to give out. Um, and we have the Lindsey Graham Total Capitulation and Submissal Award. Jason, you know, who could possibly have won this <laughs> award this week? I'm at the edge of my seat. I want you to use my words against me. If there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say, Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, who it, whoever it might be, make that nomination. And you could use my words against me and you'd be absolutely right. South Carolina senator doing a 180 on his previous position as the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. He now says President Trump's nominee should proceed, quote, expeditiously, writing in a letter to Democratic colleagues. After the treatment of Justice Kavanaugh, I now have a different view of the judicial confirmation process, adding, I am certain if the shoe were on the other foot, you would do the same. Lindsey Graham has outdone himself. Uh, he's not even pretending to stand for anything anymore. I'm sure that each of us have lots to say about this, but I don't want to give Lindsey Graham any more attention about this absurd behavior. So instead, I'm just going to tell everybody that my friend Jamie Harrison can beat Lindsey Graham in South Carolina, and we're going to put a link in the show notes for anybody interested in calling or texting South Carolina voters. Just to address one thing that Graham is saying, just because it could potentially be a form of misinformation, because I think a lot of Republican senators and operatives are saying this, is they're trying to justify their about face on this standard by saying that the Democrats eliminated the filibuster uh, and on judicial nominees. And so therefore, we as Democrats have already started to degrade the institution and the norms around how these things work. 
The problem is we got rid of the filibuster way before the garlic the Garland nomination. It was a few years before that. And the reason why we got rid of it was because the Republicans wouldn't give us a vote on any judges. So we had to get rid of it because they wouldn't allow us to exercise the ability to to place just judges. So it just doesn't line up in, in facts, just in case you hear that out there. I'll add one thing to that, which is with all that said, people should keep in mind, and, and Swati sort of said this earlier, undecided voters are not interested in process. It's like it's like you know two partisans discussing process with an undecided voter there. It's like two huge baseball fans arguing over whether there should be a designated hitter while somebody who is like vaguely aware of the rules of baseball watches, right? They don't care about the process. So like Swati pointed out earlier, before, you know, if anybody tries to take you down that road, you go right back to the stuff that the Supreme Court's going to weigh in on. You talk to them about healthcare. The whole, the reason that they think that the conversation turning to uh, a Supreme Court vacancy is good for them is because it means the conversation is about anything other than their utter and complete failure on the pandemic and their horrible positions on healthcare. So don't let them get away with that and just say, look, here's the stuff at stake in the Supreme Court. That's why I care. Well, that takes us to grab an oar. Swathi, what do you have for us this week? So many oars to be grabbed because we are in the home stretch to the election. But I think two really easy things that folks can do that'll make a big difference is I would say the window for making any kind of financial contributions to a campaign is very quickly dwindling. So if you are inclined to put a buck or two into campaigns, do it before the 1st of October. And take in mind what I said earlier, if you've got 10 bucks that you're planning to put in, allocate every dollar into important down-ballot races, make sure that you're supporting a diverse slate of candidates, um, as well as the money that you know is surely going to go into the presidential and any major federal race. The second thing that I would say is this cycle in particular, super important that we not just fund great campaigns, but also make sure that we're helping our friends and family know how to go and vote. So if you've registered, that's awesome. But what I really want to know is what your plan to vote is step by step. What day have you held the time in your calendar? Where is your polling place? Are you going early? So make that plan for yourself, but then help 10 of your friends and family build that same plan for themselves. Swathi, before I do mine, I'll just say thank you so much for doing this. You are very good at it and uh, we really enjoyed it. Right, Ravi? Absolutely. You guys, this has been so great. I've been all alone here in my little quarantine pod, but it's brought some light into my life to see you two on the other side of my screen. Oh, well, thank you for doing it. Uh, for, for my grabbing or I talked about a neighbor who frustrated me at the top of the show uh, with a conversation about politics, but my neighbor Kelly asked a while back what she could do. And Diana and I sent her a link to volunteer from home for the Biden-Harris campaign. And so she's been making calls and sending postcards. So my grabbing or is be like Kelly. Uh, and we will put that link, the same one we sent to her, in the show notes as well. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Instagram and Twitter. Swathi is at Swathipedia on Instagram and Twitter. And that is at S-W-A-T-I-P-E-D-I-A. S-W-A-T-I-P-E-D-I-A. I'm at Jason Kander on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And the show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. Special thanks to Diana Kander. 
exactly 100 women currently serve in the House of Representatives. That's actually a record, but still, women make up just 23.2% of the governing body. That's where Women Belong in the House comes in. From Wonder Media Network, host Jenny Kaplan seeks to understand the state of gender representation in office and asks how Congress would change if it looked more like the people it represents. This is a landmark election for a number of reasons, but it's also another historic year for women running for office. This season, Jenny is speaking with women who are running in some of the most contentious swing states in the country. Listen and subscribe to Women Belong in the House wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.